We are continuing in a series that I started last week on First Thessalonians, and we're going going a chapter at a time, which is a little bit arbitrary because Paul didn't write it in chapters, but, you know, the divisions are there, so it makes for a good five-week series. And um, so we're going to be considering uh, chapter two this week. And last week we learned that uh, Thessalonica was, was an important city established by... Um, uh, uh, the one of the generals that succeeded Alexander, named after Alexander, Alexander the Great's wife, a very important city, a free city in the Roman times, which meant that they they ruled themselves. They didn't have Roman rule, and so uh, they they had a lot of um, a lot of pride in their city, a lot of power, and a lot of prestige. A lot of the culture was tied up, both the the cult in terms of the religion as well as sort of the um, the the fact that if you got out of line, then they were very clear in terms of what what needed to happen as far as uh, you know staying uh, consistent with what what the the politics of the region would teach. And so when Paul came not to um, present some sort of political uh, political movement, but to present the gospel to the the budding church or these people, he initially went to the the synagogue as was his custom to preach the gospel. To the Jews as the fulfill, as Jesus being the fulfillment of the promised Messiah of the Jews. And they rejected him in that particular synagogue. And so he turned to the Gentiles, but the Jews stirred up people to, um, oppose, oppose Paul. And he was essentially run out of town. Um, it's, it's believed that Jason, who was brought in almost to provide sort of a deposit would end up, was sort of almost held, uh, blackmailed that if he didn't, if if Paul and others didn't leave, then he would essentially be bankrupted and and um, and have a lot of problems. And so Paul, as a mercy to him, left. But um, you'll see in this passage, he wasn't content to leave. He he was he left under much grief. And um, and this letter is because after three weeks of work, he's kind of run out of town, and and he's trying to describe to them his feelings of of hope for them, thankfulness that the word has taken fruit. What I'm going to do is I'm going to read the first eight verses. We're going to stand for that, and then we're going to continue through the passage. And again, I just need to be um, mindful of the time as we do that. So if you'd stand for the reading of God's word in in First Thessalonians chapter two. For you, for you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been, and been, uh, shamefully treated in Philippi, as you know, we had, we had boldness in our God to, sorry, to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our, for our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please man, but to please God, who tests our hearts. For we never came for we for we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a, a pretext of greed, God is witness, nor did we seek Glory from people, whether from you, from others, though we could have made demands as we as apostles of Christ, but we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, 
we were ready to, to share with you not only the gospel of God, but as, but also our own selves because you, you had become very dear to us. Please be seated. So you see this, um, recounting of how, how Paul, um, Silas and Timothy came to Thessalonica and he's trying to describe to the people here as he's writing to them, uh, you know, trying to establish them the conduct that he had while he was among them. And he's trying to, um, He's trying to say, this is, this is not how we came, but this is how we came. And the, the way that he didn't come was as sort of flatterers or important people. Uh, it was, as, as I discussed last week, um, if you were an important philosopher or, um, or some other luminary, you would, you could almost, you, you, you would almost go forward with an entourage to declare that, hey, a great philosopher's coming and people would, would, you know, like, you're thinking, well, what, what's the big deal about philosophers? Who would actually wait around in a city to say a big philosopher's coming? Well, back then that was the case. You would, you would have fanfare over a philosopher or you might have people coming in as they do today and they might be, um, deceivers or some sort of people that are kind of just there to make money and trying to, to kind of, to, to sell something and to, to, through greedy, greedy gain, trying to use the people with some sort of message of prosperity or something that you could offer to them. And that's what, that's not what Paul came to do. That's not what they came to do. They came, uh, because they were desirous of the people. They came and he compares himself to nursing, to a nursing mother. This is the, the, the word that he uses, the, the gentleness that he came with, the desire to, to serve. And I was, I was in Hawaii this past week. It has nothing to do with anything with the fact that that was where I was thinking about this. And I was just really contemplating about, um, how amazing mothers are in general. And I don't think you really appreciate that until you're a father and you see the work that goes into being, that, the, the work that mothers perform and the gentleness with what, what they, which, with what trying to say it, the gentleness that they do what's exhausting work for babies, um, and even for children in general, but especially babies are exhausting. Now, we've had five children, and I didn't really gain much weight during any of the, uh, of the, of the, the time frames, and ne- none of the deliveries were particularly painful for me, so, but, it takes a lot um, out of a woman. There's a lot of commitment for that. And uh, especially after the baby is born, uh, uh, you can't almost describe the amount of exhaustion that women go through. And it's amazing the amount of, of what they'll do to themselves in terms of their exhaustion to the point that they'll, they, they could almost kill themselves in the process of taking care of a child. And in fact, some, some, do because of b- bad circumstances, you know, just in terms of poverty or whatever, they will do anything to to be gentle and caring and supporting of their child. But you know, the child when it wakes up, it doesn't it doesn't say it doesn't tap on mom's shoulder and say, "Hey, have you gotten out of sleep? Um, I'm hungry right now." Oh, oh, okay. I didn't know. I know. I didn't realize you were tired. Just go back to sleep. I'll I'll check back in a few minutes. No, they just, they make demands and they need you and they, 
and they wake a mom up. And, you know, there's a level of commitment there as a nursing mother, thankfully that as a father I couldn't do because I could get sleep. But, you know, it's exhausting being around babies. They're just crying all the time. Can you shut that thing up? You know, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but anyway, um, no, but nursing moms never say, hey, can you quiet that thing down? They're just there. They're, 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 they're holding the baby in some cases like they're in pain because they're, they're holding it and their shoulders hurt and everything else. And the nature of, of the gospel work was that Paul was desirous of them, gentle, willing to feed them, willing to take care of them in, um, in very difficult circumstances. So it's a powerful image of the nature of the gospel ministry that on the one hand, it's not something that comes in and says, hey, I've got something to, to sell you. I've got this great message and, and, uh, and people are like lining up to just receive it and the person's raking in the dough or receiving all sorts of the aplomb, you know, all the, all the praise for what he's bringing to the people. It's more a labor of, it's more a labor of something where you're pouring out yourself. You're actually doing all this work, but with gentleness, because um, even in opposition, the person who understands the gospel the most is the one who understands that they were dead in sins and trespasses. And what that means is that because people are, are, are under bondage to sin and death, it means that they don't understand the message that you're bringing to them. And so it's met with opposition. It's met with difficulty. It's met even when the people are converted or changed. It's met with the, the things where people are still falling back into old habits. They're still not understanding. And so there's a constant repetition of do, having to do the same thing, having to have demands put on you. And you can't, you have to have this gentle and loving spirit to where they're, the, the person's getting everything out of you and, and there's almost nothing that's given in return. Because Paul reminds them that even though they were apostles, they could have made a demand that the gospel ministry, and, and I want to make sure you understand that, that, that the gospel ministry should be supported, right? We support Leonard and his family. We actually, we actually, um, the presbytery, uh, makes sure that our, that went before we ordain a minister, one of the things that we check is his, um, pay package or his compensation package. Because we want to make sure that the person is freed from worldly concerns and that sort of thing. So he can take care of his family, support a household and that sort of thing. And he has the funds available to do that. So he doesn't have to go out and provide for himself by another means to get another job. Bob just went through that whole process. He retired from the Navy. And and so he became, what's that? No, Bob Rumbaugh. The other Bob. Hey, this isn't a participatory thing. This is a sermon. I speak, you listen. I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, that's okay. That's, that's good. The, um, but Bob Rumbaugh just retired from the Navy and he, he had, we went through the process to make sure, hey, are you being supported? Because it's appropriate for the ministry to be supported by the church. Now, Paul says, no, I didn't do that to you. I wanted to make sure that you were taken care of. And that I wanted to make sure that when I came to you, others were taking care of the process and I had to work. He had to work really hard, actually. He'll talk about night and day because he was involved in labor that didn't pay very much and through some other ministry support. So Paul was actually not, um, not in the process of making demands out of them, but, um, very much serving them. So let's continue in verses nine to 12. 
For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil we worked night and day that we might not be a, a, a burden to any of you. Sorry, burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses and God also how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. So now he continues and talks about, again, this is the, um, Paul can actually appeal to them and say, you know the manner of conduct with which we conducted ourselves. That's a great um, testimony. Like, he doesn't go back and say, by the way, I just want to let you know that my best friend says I'm a great guy. You know, everybody, it's, if, if the only people that you can rely upon to testify that you're a, a decent person are your friends, then that's not as good of a testimony to know that, hey, you know my reputation. And they'd be like, yeah, you're right. You really did work night and day. Um, Paul was a, a tent maker, um, not in his, his primary thing was as an apostle, but he also worked, you know, with leather and that sort of thing. And so he had to work really hard in order to do that. It wasn't actually, it was not a very lucrative trade he was engaged in. He was just able to do that in order to support himself enough so that he'd work in the day and then in the nighttime he'd just teach and try and establish them. And he, he appeals to the fact that he was, um, he was, he was, um, uh, virtuous in the way that he conducted himself. And you know, he could see that the people could see that. And he compares himself to a good father in this thing. So the first part is that he's like a nursing mother. In the second um, part, he says he's like a good father. And so um, keep in mind that one of the things about fathers in this particular context um it's really hard for us to really understand kind of the economics and the way that life was in an ancient context because we live in a very modern world. Um, we live in a modern world since really probably the Industrial Revolution when labor started to become divorced from the household itself. And a lot of things change when you are not working outside the home and in and the the economy was more of an extension of the household back in those days where the father had a trade and he didn't go out, he didn't, you know, pick up his lunchbox and go off to the factory and work and come back and everything was out of the home. And so then everything was kind of an economy built around people working from households. Maybe they'd have servants that worked, but they were extensions of the household. And the, um, the, the, the training was actually not only, uh, just kind of like educational, but also vocational as the child came alongside the, the mother would train her, her daughters and the father would train his sons in the trade and they'd be working from the household, both the mother and the father. They'd all be working to support the household. And so he's, he's showing how he, um, through this, the, the, the nature of a father who cares for them like a children, training them in the ways of the things of God, exhorting them, showing himself to be um, consistent in the way that he was 
was uh, wanted to build them up and make them mature people. And so he uses this analogy first of a mother and now a father to show this deep, intimate relationship between father and child or mother and child. This is the nature of the conduct. This is the nature of the training, not as one who's coming up there and pacing back and forth as some sort of lecturer saying, I exhort you to do this. But the 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 nature of that is that the words that he's telling them about, here's the nature of the gospel, here's the nature of the kingdom of God and how it transforms, he's actually in a position of spiritual leadership as a father among them, training them not only in the words that he's saying, but the conduct in terms of how it expresses itself through the way that it comes out. And um, we all see this um, even in families uh, in terms of the, the different ways in which um, mothers and, and fathers both train their children in different ways. Uh, the mothers tend to be uh, more of the nurturing kind and uh, and in and, and many cases educating in in um, in our case almost all their you know primary education and fathers in a lot of cases are I guess if you want to say sometimes the ex- the exhorters so to speak um, I think somebody pointed out recently that um, it's good to have a father in your life because they're the people that are most likely to tell you to knock it off you know. And, and because it, it's, it's important to have somebody to tell you, yeah, you're, you're really not as, as interesting or as funny as you think you are. Um, and if we don't ever hear that, then you, you end up having problems. And we see that sometimes in people that never have somebody tell them, yeah, that's not really cool to do that or so, so to speak. And so we need to have people in our lives not only exhorting us to do the good thing, but also to telling, telling us to knock it off. And um, in a loving way, because they care for you. Uh, unfortunately, I kind of sometimes feel convicted. Well, I I feel convicted because often I tend to be more of the knock it off because I'm annoyed, not because I really care about the kid. And I have to go back and repent often because uh, I feel grieved over the fact that uh, the reason I'm telling uh, my kids to stop is because they're just annoying me. They're making too much noise or whatever. And, uh, and, and so the, the, the goal should not be ultimately whether or not I'm bothered, but whether or not the, the person is being established, the person is being built up. And that's the kind of father or the kind of conduct that Paul had among them. So as we continue in verses 13 to 6, 13 to 16, he says, and we also thank God constantly for this, that when you receive the word of God, which you had heard from us, you accepted not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work with you, believers. For you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews, who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and drove us out in disciples I'm sorry, and, and drove us, drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved. So as always to fill up the measure of their sins, but wrath has come upon them at last. Sorry, I'm having a really hard time seeing today. I don't know why it is, but, um, uh, first of all, let me deal with the elephant in the room about the whole thing about his condemnation of the Jews here. It's really, it's one of those things sometimes that 
we need to we need to recognize that there's been a lot of very uh, unholy and unrighteous persecution of the Jewish people as a race, so to speak. And so we need to say that that there's no there's no um, uh, there's nothing that can be said uh, in in praise of the way that um, historically Jewish people were treated in Europe and other things by by kind of a distorted sense of you know uh, of church and state and that sort of thing, or especially what happened as certain ideas took root and caused a holocaust of the Jews in in the uh, 20th century. What that causes, though, is kind of like almost a, an aversion in the scriptures to ever kind of look at these things and say, we can never talk about this because all of that, the only thing that this says is like the Jews are guilty for killing Jesus or something, and that, that'll that cause people to go out and, and think badly of the Jews. That's not the whole point of this thing because, remember, he's talking about that these Christians here had become imitators of the church in Judea, which is where the Jewish believers were. We often don't realize that there was a very close connection between church and synagogue, um, and that really broke around the second after the fall of Jerusalem, where uh, Christianity was actually seen by externally as a sect of 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 Judaism, and in fact, it received some protection in the Roman Empire because that's sort of how the Romans viewed it. Um, nowadays we see a sharp dichotomy in that, but the, but our understanding of the scriptures is that we're a continuation of the, the promise of Abraham, the, the, the things that belong to, um, Abraham and the promise of the scriptures, Christ is the fulfillment of those. And so we don't see, it's not like we're against the, these ideas, but the point is, is that Christ did receive opposition from the people from whom he came to preach, from the from whom he came to proclaim himself as the Messiah. And I understand there are people that don't accept that, but the point is the reality is that it's not all Jews that killed Jesus, but there were specific people who had plotted to do that. And what Paul is primarily comparing here is the fact that he's thankful that the um, church at at Thessalonica had received the word of God in spite of the opposition from their own countrymen. And then he's comparing it to the fact that, yes, in the same way that I've experienced opposition from my countrymen who reject the Messiah, even though I'm trying to preach it to him, preach it to them. Because Paul said that the gospel is to the Jew first and also to the Gentiles. And so he always went to the synagogues first, and he would bypass certain certain cities because he wanted to go to places where there were established synagogues, preach the gospel, which in certain synagogues there was a lot of fruit. Berea was was shortly after Thessalonica. They received the word of God. Others didn't. But the point is, he wasn't against them as a people. It's that the people that rejected them, he's saying there's a, a there's condemnation reserved for those who, who reject the gospel, as it is with the people who were opposing the gospel here in Thessalonica. But the primary point that he's trying to make is that the the people in Thessalonica received the word of God and they did so in the face of suffering. It wasn't like, um, it wasn't like the, the gospel was like this, um, intuitive message that just came to them and it's like, hey, that's a great idea. Um, I think I'll just give up everything and all the connections that I have. I'll, I'll, I'll become like 
poor in order to, to believe this, you know, religion and I'll, and I'll have everybody in the community think I'm a weirdo and nobody wants to do business with me anymore because I have this, you know, kind of religion that's deep down in my heart, but has no meaning other than I can't, that, that I can't express to you other, uh, anything other than it's important. The reality is that the, the, the message of the gospel had so transformed them that the, the hope that they had of Christ who had set them free from sin and death and was, had ushered them into a kingdom, the kingdom of Christ and of his glory, they understood kind of this vista of what they had been brought, set free from in terms of sin and death into this, uh, this, this kingdom of life in Christ. And so they're willing to sacrifice that which seems important, and in fact, to the people of Thessalonica, looks like they're turning away from basically the political system. It looks like kind of a political movement, even though it's not really them trying to overthrow anything. They're just trying to worship Christ, and they believe he is king, but not in the sense what they're going to say, and now we need to overthrow the government locally. They, they're not thinking that way, but that's the way it's interpreted, and so that's the very reason why um, Paul and the apostles were thrown out because on the outside, it looked like they're turning the world upside down. They're doing everything to disrupt the political order, as it were. And, and really what it is, is that lives are being transformed. They're living their lives in ways where they're saying, no, we're not going to participate in this anymore because it's a form of idolatry. We're not going to do these things. We're going to still be um, subject to the governing authorities. We're still going to live our lives with integrity. We're still going to um, uh, work uh, not, we're not going to be idle. We're going to work well with our hands, but we just don't participate in certain things anymore. We don't believe certain things anymore. And that causes a disruption. And they're willing to suffer for that sake, not because it's like something merely deep down, but because it is a way of seeing reality that God has actually done something historical in the death and resurrection of Christ that has set them free from sin and death. And so they changed their entire lives as a result of that. And then finally, in verses 17 to 20, we see Paul say, But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person, in person, not in heart, we, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face, because we wanted to come to you. I, Paul, Again and again, but Satan hindered us. For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. So Paul concludes this particular portion here. Um, he actually hasn't concluded because he continues his um, his letter. But as I'm concluding this, what I want to kind of deal with is the fact that he 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 points out, look, there might be some people saying, I thought, I thought you were kind of committed to us, maybe. I don't know who, how, how he, how, what he's responding to exactly, but he wants to make sure that as he's writing that we were torn from you. We didn't leave just because it was convenient, like something else came up. It's like, hey, we got a better gig for you, Paul. And they're like, okay, that's good because I'm kind of tired of the Thessalonians. No, he was torn from them. He didn't want to leave, but he had to leave. And so he's saying, you were, you were incredibly dear to us and it was, and we didn't want to leave. And we, um, we eagerly have tried to get back to you. Paul, 
Paul actually sent Timothy back, and it wasn't, it was, it had to be more of an infiltration because they knew who Timothy was, so they didn't go in a big group, but he did send Timothy back, and he wanted to make sure they were established, but he wanted to get back to them, but he's been hindered. And we don't exactly know the, the, the nature of the hindrance. It just, things happen in life. People have plans. And Paul, even though he was an apostle, there were things that hindered him from seeing them. And he's trying to let them know, the only reason I haven't um, come is because all of these, you know, essentially Satan's pre- presented, prevented this through many different ways. I mean, who knows? It could be imprisonments, could be uh, the, all the things that Paul went through. He, he, was, he was beaten, imprisoned, all sorts of things, just basically poured out. And he's trying to show... These people had become incredibly dear, and he's trying to get back to them. And he's trying to say to them, look, um, before God, you guys, like what we are looking forward to, this is one of those things sometimes as Christians that we don't um, deal with very well because we understand that we're saved by grace through faith. And that when you when you come to Christ or come to God, you don't say, God doesn't say, hey, Hey, let, what have you done for me lately that I might um, that I might reward you in terms of providing salvation for you? And we say, well, I've done all these amazing things, and then he says, that's great. Um, enter into my kingdom. No, what we what we come to as beggars because we're sinners, we come to Christ as beggars, saying, I'm a sinner. I've done some things that are good for other people, but ultimately nothing can do away. I can't, I can't undo the things that I've done in rebellion against you. And the gospel is that Christ came as a perfect, as a perfect law keeper on our behalf. And he took upon himself the wrath and curse that belongs to us upon the cross of, of, of Christ. The wrath of God was poured out of him, not unwillingly, but willingly Christ took this. And our sin and death died with him. The condemnation died with him, as well as the as well as our slavery to sin died with him. And then he's raised a newness of life, so that as we believe, we're brought again into a life to where we're able to obey by Christ's power. Now, when we understand that, we understand that we're not saved by the works that we do. We're not saved by the fact that we've done. You know, here's a list of ten things that need to be done. And we, have we achieved those? Yes or no? That's not how we're saved. We're not saved by works. But if we are saved by Christ, there are things that he produces in us. And we understand that as Christ, as God, as God produces works in us, he crowns his own works. By that he means he will reward the things that we do in Christ. You understand that we're not saved by our works, but we will receive rewards for the works that Christ has done in us. Do you understand the difference between what I just said? We're not saved as if we're standing apart from apart from Christ and we do all these amazing things. We are saved by the work of Christ, but then Christ produces good works in us and God rewards us for the things that he does in us. That's a pretty good deal, right? It's sort of like, um, you know, when when my kids buy me a Christmas gift, with my money, and then I reward them for the fact that they've given me a gift, that I gave them the ability to give, because that's what parents do, right? That's what our father does. He rewards, and he says that of, of the people that you're our crown and joy, that when Paul stands before um, Christ someday, 
he's going to he's going to be he uh Christ is going to be pleased that Paul produced these people created in God's image that glorify him. And yes, Christ did the work, but he did it through Paul. And it took a lot of work for Paul to do that. It took a lot of suffering, and that's the nature of the ministry. It's the nature of the, the ministry of elders to labor long some in prayer and, and, and uh, feeling like you're not doing the best you can to care for people, to pray with them, to encourage them. The, the the labor that that Leonard does to be able to come in week in week in and week out to to preach to have people um, tell him and sometimes the elders that he, we don't know how to lead or he doesn't know how to preach and then I back him up and say no you know how to preach or we all do and um, and to receive um, the the difficulties associated with that the deacons who labor to kind of um, uh, provide uh, labors of, of mercy and the ministry along with that. All of the, the volunteers um, to the, the most seemingly meaningless, meaning, meaningless thing, um, you know, changing a diaper or whatever it is, wiping a runny nose, uh, comforting a crying child. All of those things are meaningful and all those things God rewards that are done in faith and God um, looks and says to to all of you, as we look out, as I say, you are, you're our crown and joy. You people are beloved to me. Not because, um, not because you're particularly noteworthy in and of yourself. And, and we might not have ever become friends or become acquaintances other than God has gathered us up together in the church through his work, through the gospel. And so you become very precious to us. And, and I pray that, my, that, that what I can point to eventually is the work that I've done as imperfectly and all the things that I have to repent of is to say, I can look at, at, at some of you as you, some of you as you've grown or some of you I'd known that we've gotten older together, that we've both or that we've all grown in grace and knowledge and that ultimately we can, we can look and see that we're, we're each other's crown and joy. The work that we've done together as we press forward and we look to, to, to Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith, it's ultimately towards, um, His glory, but we receive a crown and glory over the work that we're doing together to continue to press in together and build one another up in the body. And so as we go into the Lord's Supper, let's remember that. Let's remember that we have been redeemed from, from, uh, a life of sin and death, and we're in, we're brought, ushered in by grace through faith into this kingdom. And now we come together as a community to, to commune together, uh, spiritually for, for all of us who have turned to Christ. And we are going to be, um, celebrating, uh, a meal together as we continue to press forward and, um, towards the kingdom of Christ. Let us pray. Our Father, our God, we thank you for your word and we thank you for the testimony of the gospel, uh, the, the work that's been done as men and women, boys and girls, receive the gospel of Christ, not as the words of men, not merely as things that, that we have conceived, not some, not some sort of um, interesting philosophy that brings uh, riches or wealth, but as it is, the words of God, that you have entrusted to men and seems foolish sometimes that that we're here continuing to proclaim things that are seemingly thousands of years old, but yet it is breathed out by God, and so it has power that that is beyond what what we might expect from 
from mere words. And so we thank you for that life-transforming work in our own lives, and we thank you that we're here today as um, dearly beloved of one another and that we are we are each other's crown and joy as we continue to work together to to build up the church of Christ. And so now as we go into a time of celebrating the Lord's Supper today, may we have that mind among us. In Jesus' name, amen.